The government's latest consolidated financial statements would give a normal CFO hives. Material control weaknesses, significant uncertainties, serious financial management problems. Those are words from the Government Accountability Office to explain why it can't render an opinion on the whole thing. We get more now from the GAO's chief accountant, Robert Dacey. Mr. Dacey, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. And as a CPA yourself, I mean, you are the chief accountant for what used to be called the General Accounting Office when it did accounting. This, you know, is kind of repetitious here, but there are some new developments. And I wanted to ask you about a statement in that report on the financial reports mentioning that the $4 trillion so far in COVID relief spending, we don't even know the full effects of those on federal financial statements. Yes, as we reported, approximately $4.5 trillion in net appropriations were provided for COVID relief. And of that, approximately $4 trillion had been spent as of September 30th, 2022. So there are remaining funds available to be spent on COVID funding. Right. So we don't really know what the net will be. And then along come the infrastructure bill and the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And those are still unfolding as well, right? So that's more uncertainty. Yeah, those are also unfolding and will have some impact on the federal government's financial position over time. All right. And the report did state that 49 percent of FY22 assets and 23 percent of costs relate to entities that received a disclaimer of opinion. That's good CPA talk. What does it mean, really, in terms of the government's total picture here? What it really means is the auditors were unable to gather sufficient evidence to support the amounts in the financial statements. It doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It just means they could not determine. So, yes, almost half of the assets and almost a quarter of the net costs were not receiving clean opinions on their audits. Right. And so it's important, I think, to note here that a great deal of what the government spends is not part of the annual appropriations that Congress never does on time, that $1.5 trillion or so. But the real expenditures are in Social Security and in medical, Medicare, Medicaid. Yeah, if you look at the total net costs of the federal government, about 75% relate to four agencies plus interest. That would be Social Security, the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Department of Defense. And rounding that out is about 5% of total cost related to net interest mainly on the debt held by the public. And by the way, what's going on with interest payments on the debt held by the public, which have grown a great deal in recent years, and now the interest rates are up? Right. As part of the financial statements, there are fiscal sustainability statements, which project the future revenues and spending based upon current revenue and spending policies over the next 75 years. And based upon those projections, net interest cost is expected to increase over that time horizon. Right now, it's about 5%. It's estimated that that will become the single largest category of spending by 2036, representing at that point about 21% of total federal spending and would continue to increase thereafter. Yeah, so it'll be almost like some of the states that have gotten into that position, I guess, a long time before. And you mentioned in the report uncertainties in social insurance. Is that meaning that there's no policy yet to change the trajectory of Social Security? What that means is that with respect to Medicare particularly, there were significant uncertainties about whether or not the projected reductions in Medicare cost growth could be achieved. And as a result of that, we were unable to determine whether the amounts that were reported in the Statement of Social Insurance, which reports basically Social Security and Medicare spending and revenues, we couldn't determine whether it was reliable or not. 
In other words, CMS has programs in place to try to rein in future costs, but it's uncertain whether those will actually rein in those costs to the degree they hope. Well, basically, it comes down to legislation, which essentially establishes the payment rates that Medicare makes for its services. And so it's those that may or may not be adequate over time to sustain the Medicare program. All right. We're speaking with Robert Dacey. He is the chief accountant at the Government Accountability Office. Material weaknesses in internal controls says that it limits the ability to test to compliance with laws and regulations. What is that meaning? What are these material weaknesses, and are they only in the Defense Department? For many years, we've had material weaknesses. In fact, there's been three major impediments since we started doing the audit in 1997, and those relate to serious financial management problems at the Department of Defense, uh, inability to adequately account for intergovernmental transactions between federal agencies, as well as weaknesses in the preparation of the financial statements. So those have been longstanding issues There have been improvement over time, and there's still uh, ways to go to address those three areas. In fiscal year 22, we had a couple of additional things. Uh, Small Business Administration was unable to receive an opinion on its financial statements, primarily due to accounting properly for the COVID funding that was provided to them. In addition, the Department of Education also was unable to have an opinion on its financial statements because of support or inadequate support for certain assumptions that were used in estimating the cost of the student loan relief package that was announced late in 2022. Right. So sometimes lack of policy causes financial uncertainties and sometimes policy causes them, it sounds like. Well, there are internal control issues already existing at both education and SBA. So I think what happened was kind of an expansion of those affecting their ability to get an audit opinion. Both those agencies had clean opinions on their financial statements for years. So this is uh, more of a recent change as opposed to the longstanding issues I spoke about a moment ago. And when you think about the amount of debt that is being added every year, that is the accumulated deficits really is what you call debt. Does any of this ability to account, I mean, what is the practical effect of it with material weaknesses and ability to render an opinion on the whole statement if the debt keeps piling on? I mean, none of the money is real in some sense. It's all just IOUs. Well, just to back up a minute, I know there are areas that we can't audit, but in looking at the agency audits, 20 of the 24 CFO Act agencies received clean opinions on their financial statements. In addition, GAO audits the uh, schedules of public debt, and we've given clean opinions for years on those, and as well as the revenues from IRS. And so there are good things happening out there, but there are still challenges that need to be addressed. And aside from the DOD, which you acknowledge is making progress in its ability to do sound accounting for its activities, they're not quite there yet. That's the biggest impediment to the entire statement. Well, that's the impediment related to DOD. The other two relate to areas where there's been a lot of improvement. Intergovernmental, I mean, the the amount of intergovernmental differences, that's where one agency doesn't show the same balances that the other partner shows, essentially. Those have come down significantly over the years, but there's still a significant amount that's left. And Treasury continues to work with agencies in reducing the extent of those intergovernmental differences. Again, there's still a significant amount remaining. The other area has to do with the preparation of the financial statements. And there are a number of areas that have been worked on by Treasury. Uh, One of the areas this past year has been that Treasury teamed up with the State Department 
and worked on the first two phases of a multi-phase project to determine whether or not the commitments and contingencies related to those treaties have been adequately supported. Right. So people that are looking to tighten up things might want to partner with Treasury to undertake studies. Yeah, that, that's been an area, like I say, both intergovernmental it's, and all of these areas, you know, outside of the DOD really require a concerted effort by both Treasury, OMB, as well as the agencies. For example, one of the other areas they dealt with was adding some additional accounting coding that can be used to make sure the innings were reported properly in the consolidated financial statements. And so those were developed, but it's going to take the agencies a while to implement and ensure that those are applied appropriately. And your report references the long-term debt-to-GDP ratio, and that's going to exceed World War II levels sometime in the next, what, eight or nine years? Projections that are in the consolidated financial statements, as well as similar projections done by GAO and the Congressional Budget Office, show that as a percentage of GDP will exceed the historic high of 106%, which was right after World War II, by 2031. And what does that mean? I mean, if a company had debts and liabilities much greater than its assets or its income, or those are two different things, I understand, it might be declared bankrupt. Well, yeah, the government's in a slightly different situation, but it's still a serious issue that we've reported for many years, that the government is not on a sustainable fiscal path, that the projected debt to GDP will increase over the horizon of the projections, which means it's unsustainable, essentially. So we've reported since 2017 that Congress should develop a fiscal plan to place the government on a sustainable fiscal path. And subsequently, that that fiscal plan should include appropriate targets for things like debt to GDP, as well as dealing with alternatives to the debt ceiling that we currently have as well. Sure. Now, you are a CPA, and CPAs like their left and the right-hand sides of their balance sheets to balance. If you were the chief accountant of the government itself, what's the first thing you would do tomorrow? Well, that's a good question. But I think what I would do is continue the efforts that are underway now. Again, it's not one party needing to do things. It's, it's a lot of different parties working together to address them. So I think that's the most important aspect. Uh, with respect to DOD, as well as the government-wide, there are action plans out there that need to be implemented, but those are probably going to take several years to fully implement. Robert Dacey is Chief Accountant at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Have a good day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report. It's 275 pages, by the way, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... Um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.